0: Mindfulness Mode 187. When I bring purpose into my life, oftentimes pain decreases. Hey, Mindful
1: Tribe, thanks for joining us again today on Mindfulness Mode. It's so good to have you with us. Don't forget, reach out if you have a comment on today's show. Just send me an email, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. Last time, I featured a man who is passionate about the concept of time, learning more about it, what it means to people, and he's written a book about time hacking and if you're curious about the concept of time hacking and hearing from a man who is truly mindful you will love our last episode today we are going to be talking about something that can apply to so many people but before i get into that i want to mention that in orlando florida podfest multimedia expo is coming up and it's a terrific event i know that because i attended last year I'm attending again this year and am going to be a speaker and I'd look forward to seeing you there. If you have any interest in podcasting, you will really enjoy this event. I'm talking about mindfulness and how it can really help podcasters to get focused, to get centered and just keep their momentum moving forward. So today, as I said, something that so many of us deal with is pain. If you know someone who has been dealing with persistent pain, you are in exactly the right place because today's guest is an expert at how to deal with our mindset when it comes to the concept of persistent pain. So sit back, you're going to learn so much, relax, enjoy yourself, and here goes with today's episode. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I am really excited today to have Dr. Joe Tata on the line today. Hey, Dr. Tata, are you in mindfulness mode?
0: Hey, Bruce, it's great to be here with you. I am strapped in and all set for my mindfulness mode for the day. (laughs)
1: That's good. Dr. Joe Tata is a doctor of physical therapy, board-certified nutrition specialist, and functional medicine practitioner who specializes in treating persistent pain and life-related health issues. His mission is to create a new paradigm around treating persistent pain and to reverse our global pain epidemic. He's the creator of the Healing Pain Online Summit and the Healing Pain Podcast. He's also the author of a highly acclaimed book called... Heal Your Pain Now. So Dr. Joe, what does mindfulness exactly mean to you?
0: Well, Bruce, as as someone who helps people heal naturally from chronic pain, to me, mindfulness is a really uh, wonderful, powerful, natural, proven way to alleviate pain by paying attention to your pain with curiosity, but without judgment. So trying to figure out what the cause of the pain is and becoming present with your pain and viewing it as an outside observer okay well that can make a big difference to how we deal with pain
1: but for for those mindful tribe listeners that are wondering okay what does it mean
0: to deal with pain with curiosity how do we do that dr joe well, as as people with chronic pain know, and all of us have had pain in one form or the or another throughout our lives, pain is a in many ways is a normal thing. It alerts us to danger at times. Um, chronic pain is not a normal thing. It's not something that should persist. Um, but I, I guess to answer your uh, your question is, with chronic pain, we know that it's less about the body and more about what's happening in the brain and nervous system. And people with chronic pain often at times become very focused on, okay, what's the cause of my pain? Is it arthritis? Is it my autoimmune condition? Is it a tendon? Is it a muscle? Where in reality, we start to look at the brain and how it implicates to our, our pain experience. So we're asking the
1: question, what is it? We're also asking the question, why? Isn't that true? Why do I have this pain?
0: That's correct. I mean, you know, some of the the top three questions that I'm often asked is, why do I have this pain? What can I do for it? And how long will it last?
1: And so how do you go about answering those
0: questions, which can be very difficult to answer, I would think. It's true. And what we've known, we have a lot of data now about chronic pain. And over the past, let's say, 50 to 100 years, we have been focused on what's called a biomedical approach to treating chronic pain. So, in a biomedical approach, we rely on things like drugs, um, surgery, and kind of fancy imaging studies to look for the cause of pain. What we now know is that we need to take what's called a biopsychosocial approach to treating pain or resolving pain. So that may look at things like, okay, you have a little bit of arthritis, but what else is going on in the brain with kind of your thoughts, um, your memories, your emotions? How does that all relate to what's called the pain experience? Because what's very interesting about chronic pain is that you can have, for instance, two people can have the same injury. Let's say they sprain an ankle, but they can have very different pain experiences or very different pain sensations based on your particular environment or what you have been taught about pain, um, what you've been told about pain, and sometimes often the myths that people hold on to about pain. Well, let's
1: talk about some of those myths, because I know I grew up in a family. I have four brothers. There were five guys, and we were rough and ready. And and believe me, it was not cool to be talking about our pain. So let's talk (laughs) about the myths that you're (laughs)
0: familiar with. Well, I think the first one is um, is that an imaging study, so an x-ray, an MRI, or a CAT scan will tell me the cause of my pain. Uh-huh. And what we have seen from in- imaging studies is that pain is poorly correlated to an imaging study. Oh. So if I were to pull, let's say, 100 people off the street and take an, take an MRI of their of their spine, of their lower back, let's say, upwards of 75% of those people may have, let's say, a herniated disc or a, a tear in their disc or some kind some kind of disc pathology. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, that imaging study does not correlate with how much pain they have. And in fact, many people have positive imaging studies but have absolutely no pain. So it just shows us that we need to go beyond the structure of our joints, our muscles, our tendons, and look toward what's happening in the brain. So that's the first myth. So one, one myth I talk about is that imaging studies do not correlate with your pain. So we need to kind of go deeper and look at the brain and what its influence is on your particular pain. Okay. And so how can you go deeper? How
1: can you actually figure out what's going on in the person's brain, why their thoughts are the
0: way they are? Well, we first start to talk to people about some of these myths, and I have um, a a great gift for all your listeners to talk about some of these myths. And really dispelling some of these myths is a way to release your pain, but it also releases your fear. And when you release fear, you tend to quiet what's called an overly sensitive nervous system. So your listeners can go to HealYourPainNow.com slash Mindfulness – and they can download what I call the 10 myths about about pain um, that keep people in this kind of pain-persistent state. One of the things I do in treatment is I'll start to talk to people about their myths about pain. So, you know, what did your family tell you about pain? For instance, did you have, let's say, a parent or a grandparent that had back pain, and you were told that if you have pain, you should rest and not move? So that tells you about what maybe... Your family told you about pain. Um, What did your culture tell you about pain? Certain cultures look at pain in a different way. Certain cultures can kind of confront their pain in a way that is not fearful. And other cultures kind of, you know, run from their pain. Um, A practitioner, you know, kind of the, the person in the white coat standing in front of you, how they explained, let's say, your pain on an imaging study or how they explained an autoimmune disease to you Often at times, those types of explanations can cause the brain and the nervous system to become very what's called sensitized. So we, t- I take people through a different, you know, a couple different um, exercises to bust those myths, as well as to basically explain to them that pain isn't necessarily about the body. That it oftentimes it's what's going on in the brain. And when we look at the brain, we like to talk about what's called a neurotag, and a neurotag is almost like a memory. So, what, what's happening? What are all the things that are occurring in your brain? Your thoughts, your emotions, the sensations. Um, are you avoiding movement? All those things are what's called the pain experience. And we kind of piece through them one by one by one and eventually someone's pain starts to decrease and their fear decreases. And when fear decreases, you can get back to things like healthy movement, which helps pain in a number – in many ways. Okay, And I'm wanting
1: to know if meditation uh, fits into this picture somewhere where we
0: can uh, reduce the pain experience through meditation. Yeah. So mindfulness – you know, mindfulness stress reduction or or meditation – is a way to um, take your thoughts, and slowly, you know, throughout the day, you're gathering these thousands and thousands of thoughts. So it's it's, it's the way to t- it's it's a way to slowly kind of swipe away one thought at a time, until maybe you're focused on something that's peaceful or calming, and through that, it'll quiet down the brain and nervous system and and alleviate pain. There are many many good studies on mindfulness-based stress reduction and how it can decrease pain within a matter of minutes. Right. So what do I
1: do if I'm working with somebody and I, they're telling me about their pain and I talk about meditation and they say, well, you know, I tried that and it didn't work. I wasn't able to calm my mind down and it was just frustrating. What would you say to that person,
0: Dr. Joe? Well, I would say mindfulness and, and meditation is a skill, just like every other skill. Like when it, when you learn how to, let's say, dribble a basketball, you're a little clumsy at first and you're not very good at it. And as you practice day by day, um, you kind of really fine tune that skill. So, you know, meditation can be difficult, especially people with pain where they have all these thoughts going through their head. So if you don't want to just, you know, kind of sit in a cross-legged position and start to meditate right away, then what I would recommend is kind of getting into the body first. And you can do that in two ways. One is through diaphragmatic breathing. So just gentle deep breathing that'll quiet your nervous system. The other way is just some gentle stretching, um, just some gentle flexibility exercises, you know, for five minutes. It's a way to prepare the body and quiet the body down before you get toward that meditative state. And the interesting thing about meditation is just three minutes a day is really where I want people to start. So you can do a couple of diaphragmatic breathing exercises before. That may take you, let's say, you know, four minutes. And then you start with, let's say, three minutes of meditation daily. Okay. That seems very reasonable.
1: It seems very easy to attain three minutes. That doesn't sound overwhelming at all.
0: No. And and particularly for people with, with chronic pain, Uh, We have a lot of good data around something called pain catastrophizing. So it sounds like a big fancy word, but those are the thoughts that oftentimes cycle through people's minds who have chronic pain that, you know, these are the thoughts that go like this. Oh, my God, I have this pain. It's never going to go away. Or this pain is going to be the death of me. Or this pain interferes in every single aspect of my life. What we know about these types of thoughts is not only does it make your pain worse as far as the intensity, but it can also make the duration of pain or the the how much pain lasts, it can make that worse. So oftentimes I tell people, okay, meditation is going to be a powerful tool for you, but let's look at some of your thoughts first and let's kind of write them down on paper. So let's write down maybe the top five um, pain catastrophizing thoughts you have and let's replace replace those thoughts. But something that's more kind of soothing or calming or or positive. So oftentimes in my practice, I talk about signs of safety versus signs of danger. So pain catastrophizing are those signs of danger in your mind where signs of safety such as I was able to do five minutes of exercise this morning or um, I love the new recipes in my diet or even though I have pain – I was still able to go to work today. Those are signs of safety and just journaling about them or writing them down for a couple of minutes either in the beginning of your day or the end of your day can help decrease that catastrophizing and prepare you for practices like diaphragmatic breathing or some meditation.
1: Okay, so so meditation, journaling, powerful things. Let's talk about addictions. I know you've talked about that on your podcast before, and your podcast, of course, is the Healing Pain Podcast. Mm-hmm. Do addictions sort of interfere with how we deal with
0: pain? Yeah, it's a really great question, Bruce, and I'm glad you brought it up. So, you know, in our country right now, we have about 100 million people who struggle with chronic pain, And part of that outdated biomedical model is that we have used opioids, which are addictive substances, to try to treat pain. And I'm not against opioid use for, let's say, the the lowest dose for the shortest period of time, because sometimes people need them as part of an integrated approach to healing from pain. But we know that long-term opioids are not a solution for chronic pain, and in fact, long-term opioid use can actually lead to something called hyperalgesia. And it's kind of a fancy word that means that the more opioids you take, sometimes the more pain you can actually have. So basically you take more opioids, your pain increases, you need more opioids to to decrease that pain, and it kind of becomes a vicious cycle. So we know that opioids are not the – solution for chronic pain and oftentimes we have to start doing things like meditation uh, physical therapy nutritional interventions cognitive behavioral therapy we do those interventions in combination with opioid therapy or even before opioid therapy is even prescribed and that really is kind of the key to my platform is I really would like to um, educate both the layperson as well as the practitioners out there that have the habits of prescribing opioids first that there are integrative natural strategies for healing pain that move people rapidly away from things like dependence and addiction and empower them with the body's natural forms of healing. Okay, well let's talk about cannabis, medical marijuana.
1: I know there's a lot of talk about how that can help deal with pain. Does it help
0: deal with pain successfully in your opinion? So we're learning a lot about things like um, CBT oil and how it can help with pain. Um, they tend to be less addictive. Um, they're certainly not as addictive as opioids. But again, I think um, they are part of an integrated approach to pain. So some people may need a little bit of help in the beginning as they're working toward these strategies. But ultimately, my goal is to get people off of any kind of substance and you know, get their brain and their nervous system to really quiet down to the point where they have no pain at all. Wow. Well, there is a lot of use of that. And it seems
1: like our culture is moving toward uh, more use of it. I mean, with the whole emphasis on legalizing marijuana, is that going to be a helpful
0: thing for our society? You know, it, it's a great question and we're still learning about it, both as far as like the, you know, research, as well as what clinicians who are prescribing it are seeing, seeing in their practice. I would say it's a better use of a drug rather than an opioid. I think we have to be very careful, though, that we don't just lead people down the path that this one um, oil or this one you know, joint, if you will, is the way to solve your pain. Because ultimately, with any kind of drug, it really kind of desensitizes the entire nervous system. And that can be a very powerful thing in small doses. But things like meditation do the same thing. Diaphragmatic breathing does the same thing. Healthy movement actually does the same thing. Just listening to a podcast like this where people start to learn about what pain is and what pain isn't does the exact same thing. In fact, in many studies, we find that just bringing people through what's called a pain science education or a pain science experience within one to two hours of learning about the pain experience, learning about how the brain works, that people's pain, that a patient's pain can actually decrease. Well you've done a
1: uh, an online summit about healing pain and I'm sure there were so many different aspects of how to deal with pain. What did you learn from some of your guests on that? What what jumps into your mind as something that even you thought, wow, that's an interesting piece of information?
0: Well, a, a couple things. The first piece of information, I think we've done a very good job now um At educating people about inflammation as far as inflammation being the root cause of pain and our diet can be inflammatory um and a lot of a lot of nutritionists really focus on that one strategy and that's very very important especially for people who have things like obesity or diabetes or an autoimmune condition so diet and nutrition can be one of the key ways to decrease inflammation in your body one of the things that we often miss at times is the role of the brain in pain and i talk about that in my book heal your pain now so looking at what's going on in our in our brain as as well as what's going on in our in our in our body so one of the key things i talk about as far as the brain in pain you know it's bringing kind of the cognitive mindfulness based approach to the oftentimes nutritional approaches or movement approaches. And when you combine those three those three things together, the nutrition, the movement, and the mindfulness, that's when you get the really powerful combination that empowers people to heal their pain in a 100% drug- free way.
1: Right. Well, you know, let's talk about sugar because you've talked about inflammation, you mentioned obesity, diet and nutrition. And to me, sugar is a huge area when we talk about the field of pain, because I, I know personally, I decided to give up processed sugars about three years ago, and it made a huge difference in my life. Let's talk about your opinions and
0: your thoughts about sugar and inflammation. Yeah, I mean when, when a, a patient comes to me and we're we're talking about nutrition, there are three things that I really start them on, and that's a a sugar-free diet, a dairy-free diet, and a gluten-free diet. But I would say that sugar is probably the top strategy as far as nutrition goes, because obviously when you eat sugar, it, it increases your blood sugar levels. Right. When when blood sugar levels increase, inflammation increases almost instantaneously. And if you have a diet that consists of you know, processed flours and sugars, you can have, you know, an, an inflammatory state basically 24 hours a day. The other interesting thing about sugar is that it raises cortisol levels. So cortisol is the stress hormone. Right. When that stress hormone raises, and this can happen with your thoughts as well, but it also happens with with sugar. When cortisol raises, it, it puts kind of fat around your midsection, that kind of belly fat, and that belly fat in and of itself is inflammatory. So that belly fat... Uh, produces painful chemicals throughout the entire day so sugar really is the number one nutritional strategy if you want to start decreasing inflammation naturally through nutrition it would be taking out any processed flours and any processed sugars from the diet yeah and that
1: can make a big difference well let's talk about dairy what kind of differences will that make in your life if you reduce or eliminate dairy products
0: well, what's interesting about dairy is that dairy has lactose in it and lactose is a form of sugar. That's why you hear many people being lactose intolerant. And you know, upwards of 75% of, of humans are lactose intolerant beyond the age of 40. So one, you get that sugar out of your diet, but there's also a protein in dairy called casein and that protein can be inflammatory for many people. So it's really kind of a double whammy with dairy. There's the sugar that's inflammatory And then there's that one protein that can be inflammatory as well, which causes something called leaky gut. Oh, what is that? So leaky gut is when your intestine becomes permeable to proteins that should not really pass through there. So these are oftentimes proteins in the diet, such as casein or gluten. These are proteins that are attached to, let's say, the cell wall of viruses or bacteria And once they pass through your cell wall or the wall of the intestine, it can start an inflammatory cascade that travels around your entire body. And oftentimes, these inflammatory molecules get deposited in things like joints or muscles or tendons and can cause persistent inflammation. And this is really most pertinent to those with autoimmune disease. So out of the 100 million Americans that struggle with chronic pain, about 50 of them have an underlying autoimmune disease, so we really look at diets to really help those people And things like gluten, dairy, and sugar are oftentimes the three most inflammatory foods that come out of the diet, and within three weeks, if you take those foods out, you will see a massive decrease in the amount of pain that you have.
1: Okay, so that maybe wouldn't be that difficult for some people. What are the challenges? Let's talk about gluten for a second. What are some of the challenges of eliminating gluten from your diet?
0: Well, the challenge with gluten is, is first you have to know where gluten lives. So it's in things like rye um, and wheat. But gluten also is found in many packaged foods. Um, it's even found in things like stamps that you may be looking or or makeup products or personal hygiene products that you're using. So the challenge is you have to identify where gluten lives. And once you know a couple of places where it lives and where it resides in your diet, it, it's really easy to take out. And what's really fascinating is that once people take gluten out of their diet and they see how much their pain decreases, they never even want to go back and, and put it back in. So I always say give it a trial of about three weeks. And on my website right now, if you go to the homepage at drjotada.com, there's a healing pain foods checklist. And that checklist I have is a wonderful checklist to take to your grocery store. Um, Because it gives you all the foods that are basically gluten-free, so you won't have to, you know, you don't get into any trouble as you're as you're shopping and preparing your meals. Well, it's fascinating that you
1: could lick a stamp and get gluten from that, and that tiny amount would
0: actually affect some people. Then, is that true? Yeah, if you have celiac disease, which is an autoimmune condition of the small intestine, which exists in about one percent of our population, even something as small as that can cause a reaction. Upwards of about 40% of our population is gluten intolerant. So those are people that, you know, maybe they can have a half of, let's say, a plate of pasta and they're okay. But if they have it multiple times a week, then they start to get things like IBS or joint pain or headaches or skin reactions. Um, Some people even get things like brain fog from it. So when you talk about being mindful, um, you know, being mindful of your dietary choices on a daily basis can be – a solid way to decrease pain in your life. Well, let's talk about alcohol and and wine. And I know some people
1: will have a sip of wine and they get an instant headache, but let's talk about alcohol and how
0: that can relate to pain. Yeah, so that can be a slippery slope. So, you know, we know that a, a glass of wine a few times a week, you know, between three and four glasses a week is healthy. Um, alcohol can be a crutch for people uh, where they use it as a way to decrease their pain. So rather than choosing things like mindfulness based stress reduction or progressive relaxation exercises or the diaphragmatic breathing we've talked about, um, they turn to the alcohol to quiet their nervous system or to decrease pain. And that's really not where we want to, um, you know, it's not what we want to teach people. We want to teach people okay, how do I calm my ner- nervous system naturally? What are the positive thoughts and intentions I can add into my life? Um, what are my activity goals for the week that'll help me decrease pain? Um, what's my sleep goal? Cause we know that sleep is very important for pain. What's my nutrition goal? What's my pleasure goal for the week? So do I have some type of activity in my life that brings in pleasure? When you bring in pleasure, you decrease pain. And last but not least, what's the purpose in my life? When I bring purpose into my life, oftentimes pain decreases. So you know if you have a glass of red wine a couple times a week it's wonderful i have it that's that that's can can be a healthy part of your diet but it's not going to be the way to manage your pain
1: right Right. Well, it's interesting you mentioned purpose, because I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, figure out what is your passion and grab your passion. And, you know, it makes sense. I mean, if you're living your life and you think, well, I really have no hobbies, I really have no interests, I just go to work all the time. I have met people like this. And do you find that they have higher levels of pain in their lives than people that really do have lots of things that
0: they love to do in their lives? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of studies done, and we see this in clinical practice as well. When people come in and I talk to them about the various aspects of their lives, one thing that I talk to them frequently about is their job. Um, Not only how stressful is your job or how many hours do you work, those things can contribute to pain, but oftentimes what's going on in the work environment. um, And there have been a lot of studies done around actually bullying, bullying in the work environment. So that could be. Um, a boss that can be bullying or that can be a coworker, or someone at work that, you know, is bullying to you. And we see in studies and obviously through talking with patients as well, that if they're in that kind of work environment, that just by going to work can cause things like headaches or back pain or neck pain to, to increase. Um, and then, you know, when you look at purpose, obviously, if you're going to a job that you love and enjoy and brings purpose to your life, and you, it's not so much work for you, but it's, it's uh, you know greater meaning, that those types of of patients or populations of people have significantly less pain than people who go to work and it's, it's, you know, doesn't necessarily bring, it may bring a paycheck to their life, but doesn't necessarily bring any kind of purpose to their, to their being.
1: Sure. That makes sense. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned bullying because that was going to be my next question. I believe, and have found with my experiences with my clients that, that, you know, mindfulness can really help to reduce how we look at bullying and how we perceive it. Do you have a story, possibly a story about yourself and bullying that happens? to you or maybe one of your clients or somebody you know where mindfulness would have made a really big difference?
0: Well, from a clinical perspective, we see that chronic pain oftentimes starts early in life. So there's a priming of the nervous system that develops early in life. So if a child is bullied, they're more likely to have things like back pain, neck pain, migraines, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, all those types of chronic pain or pain syndrome type conditions, what's really interesting when we look at the data is that not only do children that are bullied develop those syndromes, but also the people doing the bullying. So, you know, we look at bullying, okay, we obviously want to help the person being bullied, but we also know that we have to help the other person as well, Right. that they're they're both likely to develop these types of chronic pain syndromes. In my personal life, um, you know, as an adult, the (laughs) The one thing that comes to mind um, most is right now we know that natural strategies, things like physical therapy, nutrition, cognitive behavioral strategies, can significantly decrease pain. However, insurance companies at times cover this just barely or don't cover it at all. So I spend a lot of my time – Um, negotiating or acting as an advocate for for patients to try to get their insurance company to cover these types of services. And oftentimes I feel like I'm being bullied by kind of these, you know, larger multinational um, publicly traded health insurance companies that we have here in the United States that oftentimes can be um, more concerned about the bottom line dollar versus people's health. So, you know, I think I think these these companies need to start to come around and embrace these types of natural strategies and start to pay for them and make it affordable so we can help the 100 million Americans that are in pain get out of pain naturally, basically. So, you know, I feel bullied by the insurance company when they say, well, I'm going to give you four visits. And I say, you know, four visits is not enough. This person's had pain for 20 years. And I probably have about, you know, nine months worth of care that I really need to work with this patient one on one to really help them turn their, their life around. Wow, do you see a shift happening
1: are Are you experiencing changes with the insurance
0: companies in this way well there's there's very very um there's signs of of hope there. I know there's a couple of insurance companies in um uh the state of Oregon that have kind of lifted physical therapy at times it can be kind of an arduous process for us to get benefits or to get approval of physical therapy. Right. And I know the insurance companies are starting to make that uh, process easier. But, you know, the United States is a, is a large country and we have a lot of people in chronic pain. And what's interesting yeah. is that what we see happening in the U.S. really occurs in every single country throughout, not only the modern world, but also the developing world. So um, pain rates are, are very similar. And we really have not... Developed not only a healthcare system, um, but also just a, a kind of mindfulness system of how to treat people with pain. So it, it's happening slowly, and podcasts like yours, Bruce, and podcasts like mine, um, and you know the work of kind of people in this space is is helping. But we have a long way to go, and that's why I really have developed this platform around um, healing chronic pain naturally. And that's one of the, that's one of the big things on my platform is okay, how do we change our healthcare system to help people? you know, more rapidly versus, you know, waiting until they've had pain for for 20 years before we say, okay, let's work on something that's more natural.
1: Yeah. Dr. Tata, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced your own mindfulness practice and
0: mindfulness beliefs? Oh, one person. I only have to choose one person. (laughs) (laughs) I would say uh, Dr. Peter Levine. He's um, someone who's done a lot of work on healing people with with trauma. And oftentimes people with trauma have a lot of chronic pain. So I've followed a lot of his work. So a lot of his work focuses on being mindful around the pain experience. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? Mindfulness has affected my emotions by allowing me to have certain emotions, things like fear, um, frustration or anger but not letting them overwhelm my entire day or my entire physical or emotional experience. We've talked about breathing, but maybe you can uh, give us a concise
1: version. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice.
0: Sure. So I practice something called four by four breathing. So that's inhaling for four seconds, holding it for four seconds, and then exhaling for four seconds. And we know that that brings healthy oxygen to our system. It helps release tense muscles. It helps regulate high cortisol levels. And it even helps regulate high blood sugar levels.
1: I know that you have a wonderful book coming out. And I'd like you to mention that. But as well, do you recommend any other books that are related to mindfulness or healing or
0: anything like that? Um, The Biology of Belief is a wonderful book. Um, it's by Bruce Lipton. Um, it's a great book for, for people to pick up. That's, that would be my first choice. Mm-hmm. And tell us about your book. So my book is called Heal Your Pain Now, The Revolutionary Approach to Reset Your brain, brain and Body for a Pain-Free Life. It's available on Amazon. It's currently in the number one position in the chronic pain category. And it really brings people through a three-step healthy process of resetting your brain and body through the brain and pain through healthy movement, and then through healthy nutrition.
1: And I'll put a link right in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com so that you can click on that and get, get that because I highly recommend it. Could you share an app which helps you to be more mindful or would help some of our Mindful Tribe listeners
0: be more mindful? Sure. My favorite app is something called Universal Breathing. It's called the Pranayama Free app. And that's an app where it gives you a couple different breathing exercises, but you can also... Um, regulate that app specifically to the type of breathing that feels most comfortable or most beneficial for you. And it's free and you can download that um, from the app store. Well, that's just great. It's been
1: terrific talking with you. And I know there are so many people in pain that can really benefit from having heard you on this, on this show, but tell us, how can we connect with you, learn more about what you do and just continue learning about pain?
0: Yeah, so first I would say go to healyourpainnow.com mindfulness where I have a great free gift for all the listeners about busting the 10 myths around chronic pain. So just learning what those 10 myths are can help decrease your pain experience. As well, you can reach me at www.drjoetata.com. That's my website. You can see the Healing Pain podcast there and you can opt in for my free gift as well. And I know you're
1: on Facebook as well, Dr. Joe. So that's a place where we can connect with you also, right?
0: Yeah, I have a really active um, Facebook page. So that's at Dr. Joe Tata. And I I post there throughout the day about tips and strategies to help people overcome their chronic pain. Super. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate all
1: your thoughts and advice on this topic. So have a great rest of your day, Dr. Joe.
0: Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for the work you do. It's been a pleasure.